So welcome everyone, welcome to the continuation of the theme of the fundamentals of Dharma. <clears throat> we are, uh, I hope we are on track or aligned together to uh, look at these principles as being deeply important uh, to the way we practice and the alignment of our practice. <clears throat> They're really meant for uh, those of us who want to awaken. And I hope that that includes you, uh, because that's really what the system is about. Buddhism uh, is really only has one track and purpose. And we keep trying to dilute that track or find other ways to uh, obscure it or to alter it so that it fits what we want our life to be rather than to what the true direction of Dharma is, which is waking up. Now, at least that <coughs> might sound scary. Let me put it in terms that feels very approachable. And that is to awaken just means to be conscious, right? So there's nothing too obscure about the term. It's simply we're moving from unconsciousness to consciousness. We're just waking up to the tendencies that we have habitually done and the motivations that have been clouded by uh, our unwillingness to look and see. So it's simply continuing on, you might say, uh, but with a, with a, within a new perspective of being conscious of what we're doing. So that's that, I, I want to take the fear element out of what it means to awaken, because it sounds like something earth-shattering. It is earth-shattering, because much of our blindness is uh, around our perception. And that really brings me to the subject that I want to speak about tonight, which is wise view. And it's whenever, whenever I get involved with one of these topics, it always feels like I should have talked about this for a year. <laughs> it seems so important, you know. And so this one is certainly has that same sense of uh, of importance tied with it. In fact, well, the Buddha said to try to practice without wise view is like trying to churn water into butter. So that's pretty conclusive, right? But the sense of what is a view and why is it so important? Why is this a fundamental? Why is this a foundation of our teaching? And the view is the way we take life, what we assume life to be, how we perceive it. It's not just how we think about it, what we think of it. It's actually within our perceptions itself. Our beliefs determine our perceptions. I mean, it's really obvious that that's in fact the case because we can rearrange your perceptual world so that it's almost unrecognizable to you. And within a short period of time, the mind, the brain, will put it back into a recognizable form and then move through it. For instance, I could invert your image, which your image is already inverted, by the way, 
as light comes into your lens, what you're actually seeing is the world upside down, but do you see it upside down? No, because that's not what we know it to be. That's not what we believe it to be. We convert that image into right side up. And we're doing that actively, ongoingly, within our, within our belief systems. So this sense of view, or what we believe life to be, is a, is a nugget here. Because from what we believe life to be, form our assumptions about life. How, what we take life. And then from that, all of our strategies spring forth. Now, it's interesting how we, we sort of know, okay, wise view is important. So, you know, I should get it together. But every day we wake up, we see the same view that we've always seen and fall back into the gravitational hold that that view has upon us. We may practice uh, meditation and we may do some of the homework assignment but pretty much, through the course of the day, we stay within the view we've held since time immemorial. The subject and object of me and you, that's part of the view, the distorted view of perception. It's what we have learned or have come to believe that life contains. Many objects, one subject, many objects, some called you, some called it. And we're relatively comfortable within that. I mean, there are a few knocks and bruises that we take as we bump in to the strategies which play forth from that view, but pretty much we have found our own little niche and we have sort of cordoned off our area, our territory, and we operate pretty well within it until tragedy strikes, until we receive a terminal illness or loss of some way, and then that sort of shakes everything up a little bit. In fact, I had a friend who was uh, with her dying husband, both of them meditators, and they were at the hospital as he was getting uh, the last possibility for his terminal diagnosis. The, the, they offered him one last chemotherapy infusion in the University of Chicago, and they'd flown there. And he, she was walking with her husband, who had an IV pole beside him, so the three of them were walking. <laughs> and the IV uh, chemo was going into his port-a-cath, or wherever it was going. And uh, she was there practicing walking meditation together on the corridors of the hospital. And she said, I understand walking meditation. For the first time, I realized there was no gain here. I realized my husband was not going to, that this was a last hope. In fact, he died shortly thereafter. But it, was a, it wasn't really about the chemotherapy. It was about being together. It was about the consummation of their, of their life together and that walking, it really wasn't about survival in that normal sense. And it changed her 
understanding of the entire way meditation is meant to bring us in, is meant to connect, is meant to interconnect with one another. And to this day, she holds that spirit within her practice. So this is not just a, a small change that we're talking about. It's something quite enormous. And it uh, is, is central to the teaching because it's the first of the Eightfold Path. The Buddha didn't mess around. He says, first rung is wise view. So get that together and then we'll talk about the other rungs. Okay. So first thing we have to do is to see what is unwise view. What is it that we see when we look out? What is it that we're comfortable seeing? What is it that we take life to be? You see how essential this is? Because if what you take life to be is also the way you practice, how will you ever become anything different from the strategies played forth by this view? It'll just be circular. You'll think you're doing it, but all the thoughts will really be emanations from the static view you're already holding. So this is extraordinarily important. Now, many of us can find the seeds of our strategy of the old view, of the old paradigm, within our practice. We sit and we think in terms of self-improvement. We think in terms of cultivation of acquiring. If we have a problem or a difficulty in front of us, we think of overcoming. And those terms are really strategies that we have applied our whole life. In school, in the countless ways we've interacted, we've been using what we have perceived life to be as the way we've overcome it. And so even the words like acquire or overcome or self-improvement rely upon an established sense of me having to sort of find my way through the difficulties of life by cultivating certain qualities and eliminating others and acquiring possessions and all of that. And so that has become the system by which we move and act within the world from the strategies applied from the view we've already obtained, that we've lived with, that we have genetically almost sealed ourselves around. There are two principles within this old paradigm that play forth again and again and again. One of those principles is the principle of pleasure and pain, that we are driven towards seeking greater enhanced pleasure, comfort, within the objects and within the situations of life. And conversely, we, are, uh, we uh, back away from or turn away from or try to limit the influence of the unpleasant situations. And so playing with life on, with that strategy is the view that we have all held within our life. Now I also just think as we're talking about this, think when you hear what 
the old view contains as its essential formula for action, for motivation, start hearing whether you're doing the same thing within your meditation, which is an attempt, in essence, to change your view. And if you are, I would suggest some cold water on your cheeks because you're staying within your view even as you're trying to change it by using those very strategies. So you have to listen with a discerning heart here. Very carefully. It's very nuanced. It's very nuanced. And it was many years into my practice before I began to realize that I'd been chasing my own tail. That nothing was going to change as long as the way I was perceiving. I wasn't acting from any other perceptions than the way I'd always perceived. How, what, was it, what was I expect, expecting? How was it going to get in, you see? Even when I had an insight, the rare one that occurred, <laughs> so that was a great insight. Let me have more insights. It was always about some sense of self-diminishment, needing more of something in order to what? To come to a, an acclaimed place in which what would happen? See, that was never clear to me. That was never clear to me. That there would be a moment, it was always, there was always something unexpected that was going to happen at some point in time that would change the whole thing around and right the ship. But as long as I was practicing in the opposite direction of riding the ship, it was continuing to sink. So it was a, it's been a long voyage. And I really, in essence, want to communicate this to you as an essential Dharma point. Now, so this principle of pleasure pain is a, we, See, what Buddhism encourages us to explore the principles, the strategies that we are employing so that we will tire of them, so that we'll see that they're limited, that they have only a limited value, that there's much more limitation, that they further divide life out, and they create tension within the plane of that strategy forth. And so very assuredly, you can play or, or explore this pleasure-pain scene in yourself, and you begin to become very disenchanted to it relatively quickly. It doesn't, it doesn't take that keen of a samadhi practice to see that when you're leaning into pleasure, you're thereby creating the very definition of pain within that leaning. It's like a windshield wiper. If it's pointed that way, I'm leaning that way, the rest of the window is something I don't want. Right? And so with any leaning, there is, there is a definition being created on both sides. I want this, and I'm leaning away from, I'm leaning towards something and away from something else. And the leaning away from something else is also a definition that binds me. And so no matter what I do in my leaning, I'm bound in either direction. And you can get a sense of that. You can also get a sense of how 
when you're caught up in this pleasure pain principle, you create polarities. <laughs> I'm having a pee problem. <laughs> you get caught up in polarities that haunt you. The good and the bad, you know, the moral and the unjust, the moral and the unjust. And that just further creates a schism within life that's further perceived and hardened within the view of separation. So you can see it working. You can see yourself creating the very separation you seek to overcome through how you hold life and what you're doing within it. And Buddhism is meant to show you that. Right? Buddhism is meant to show you the limitation of the strategies you're currently applying. So, partially successful. But let's look at a few other principles. There's another principle that <clears throat> is equally as powerful as that one. In fact, it is formed from that principle. And that is the principle of, of uh, ownership. Uh, the, the view of personal possessiveness, of I, me, and mine. Now, we live with that fact. We recite that fact constantly. We employ our actions around that fact. We defend that fact individually and culturally. That's what war is called. And then we're asked to actually examine what that fact is at the, in the basis, in its experiential sense. I mean, it's like, it's like uh, Harvey the rabbit, you know? You have a, an imaginary rabbit that you live with for so long, no one else can see, but everybody plays along with it. In fact, they each, everyone has their own pet rabbit called me. And since you, nobody else is looking, everybody else is just petting and stroking the rabbit, you do the same. And then you come into, through the Buddhist door, and they say, what, what is the rabbit? Some of us don't want that question. We just want to keep on stroking it. But some of us have the courage enough to actually inquire into that. Say, what is, what is this thing I've been stroking, calling, protecting, defending, investing in? I should at least know that, shouldn't I? I mean, it's like giving your money to a stranger, you know, all, the, all your wealth to a stranger, and you're not sure what they're doing with it. And you're giving all your attention and all your energy to something that you're not even sure what it is. And so when we start just examining this thing, it doesn't get defined. It gets more ambiguous as to what we're pointing to. Less certain, not more. And from that encouragement 
hopefully what occurs then is less of a self-centered approach to life. That less of a self-centered approach to life means that there isn't quite as much tension around the strategies which have up until this point led to the stroking of that sense of me. The acquiring, the needing, the defending, the embellishing, all of it. And then, so we began to relax a little with this idea of mine, of me, as not being so tangibly true. Not that that doesn't have, if there isn't a sensing of self, a sensing of being separate, but that this egoic state of differentiation and all of the accompanying defense mechanisms around this sense of separation becomes less obvious, more lightly held. So we start examining that. We start seeing that the, the view that we have held, the old paradigm that we have lived within, has everything that we have taken for granted, has, it's kind of a, um, a collaborative lie, right? We've all just kind of agreed not to look. And then we start looking and asking questions. And it feels funny because we feel a little bit out of place now. We feel a little bit uh, not in the same solidity that we had felt prior to our questions. And uh, everybody else seems very solid in themselves, at least very solid in the idea of themselves, but not really very solid in themselves because if you scratch belief below the idea of themselves, there isn't much going on there that ver is verifying that idea at all. There's a lot of activity in that direction, but very little truth is actually being sought. So that's one of the ways that we explore our way through this old paradigm into the new, is by showing us that the limitations of the old paradigm are so obvious when you start looking, when you start asking appropriate questions. And the energy starts coming out of it. But there is a, still a, a more uh, hardened strategy that lives within this old paradigm that is very much more reluctant to be given space and lightness. And that is uh, the laws of thought. We hold our life together by thinking. Thought to us is uh, the god of our times. We create conceptual gods and bow to them endlessly. The laws of thought, we don't know. The view is created by looking out onto life through the words that we, our minds create. And we see those words. I was uh, in Port Townsend. We were doing a non-residential retreat this last week. There was some college professor there who wanted to argue with me about uh, that uh, an object wasn't what the mind 
thought it was. He, thought, he said, no, it's just that. It's just what the mind says. It's just, no, it exists irrespective of what the mind says. So I so said, how could something exist irrespective of what the mind says? How would you know it? How, get, get someone from the rainforests of Brazil, bring them here and show them a Buddhist statue. They're not going to know what that is. Why? Because their mind hasn't learned that fact. But the, anyway, the, so it was, he, was, he wasn't going to give up on that point because it was so important to him and his whole history as a professor that things remain true regardless of whether the mind says they're true or not, that, that, that there's an absoluteness to an object irrespective of what the mind is doing. But there is only what the mind is doing to an object. I hope we all see that. And that's often what we think about it. And with those thoughts come our emotional conditioning with it. And all the expectation, history, and memory we have had with that or a similar object, which we can also generalize and invest into. And so this world of objects is really a mind-lived world. Our mind is giving it substance. There is no substance other than what the mind is doing to invest into each thing. And we begin to see that. We begin to see the limitation of investing in an object because the investment is coming from me. What do I want to just be quiet, see what the world's like when I don't offer it further thinking, when I offer it no label or image. And at some point, there will be, you'll reach it, and perhaps it's already come, you'll reach a, a kind of threshold in yourself where you're not willing to manufacture the world any further through your thinking. We've been, we've, been, we've been setting it, we've been setting it on course up until now. What is it like if I said nothing about it? What is the reality of the world when my mind has divested its energy from it? What's it look like? You see? Now we're getting close to the change of the paradigm in view. Because now we're not just talking about having little insights. We're actually talking about it, where our energy is invested through our actions. Right? What does this thing look like? And so what's more important to us when we reach that threshold is not what something is, but what the truth of something is. Not what that something is to our minds or what our mind says it is, which is just the thought covering that object. But what is the truth of that object? What is the truth of me? I certainly have an image. But if I just let all that image be quiet, be still, what is the truth that's there? And as we venture down that avenue, our perceptions start changing. It's a perceptual shift. When we start venturing down the road of quietude, when we get quiet with life, it gets rearranged. We're not invoking any preconceptual arrangement onto it. 
in fact, we're just, we're sort of have, we sort of release the need for the mind to reveal anything. And we sense, we have a felt sense of something that ignites our attention, our interest. We become much more available and alive within it. And as this paradigm shifts from the old view into the new, and let us say, let us call the new view interconnectedness. There's no word, of course, that actually describes the view itself, but it gives us a direction to travel and practice, which is very important. And it's for the reason that the Buddha backs up and says wise view before, right when you're starting to practice, the first thing, wise view. Start interconnecting. And that's what meditation is meant to do. And meditation is a system to be used for the transformation of the view we hold. It's meant to show as I mentioned, the limitation and value of the old view and how it can't serve us the way we have always wanted it to serve us by making us everlastingly happy because there's no such thing within that view. And it starts showing us how we have created the separation on from what we do to ourselves all along the way. So as we start bringing our attention inward, we see that the states of mind that have driven our life, that have stated their own purpose and truth to us, and therefore we've just behaved in accordance with whatever state of mind is on display. If it's the state of mind is impatience, we will be impatient. It's the true governance of our Awareness is the state of mind we're in, in the old view. If we're bored, we're bored. If we're happy, we're happy. It's whatever the state of mind tells us, that's what the state of this organism. Isn't that amazing? When I, when I say it, I think, my God, it, that's exactly right. <laughs> but I can't believe I... <laughs> You just follow it. It says, go left, you go left. You don't even question it. You just think that's it. And as we start connecting with that state of mind, we start taking the personalization out of that state of mind. It's no longer I am impatient. Where's the I am in impatience? Whatever, what got that going? That's like, just some voice from something, you know, from our consciousness or something. There's no I am. There's just this. There's just impatience. There's just annoyance. There's just, there's just this. It's just this. And there's no personalization with it at all. It's just this. And this space opens up because now we have impersonalized what we have taken to be so truly me. And with that space, we have options. Now, impatience occurs, and we have to be very careful here, because the old view will say, get over it. The old view will say, 
substitute this for that, right? That this, if you want to improve, have no more impatience. The new view says interconnect. What's our meditation say? It says connect with this. It says stay present. Don't try to eliminate it. Stay present. Relax with it. When you relax with it, you're not in tension because you're not investing it in being you. And when you've divested it in being you, space is around it. It gives you options now. The space says, you, the space then holds the energy, not the impatience. And so I can now feel impatient without being impatient. Now I have greater options, you see. Now the forms and displays of the mind no longer are personal and are mandates for us to act from. If I'm angry, I don't throw things anymore. I don't strike out. And as the view resolves itself, these states of mind that only existed in the old view of self and other begin to eliminate themselves because they're no longer fostered or encouraged from a view of separation. The sense of interconnectedness starts healing the very rift itself. This working cooperatively in that way begins to change the whole thing around. I was once with a sage, Nisargadatta Maharaj, who wrote I Am That. I was a monk, kind of a brash and arrogant monk. And I went to Bombay, India, and uh, he just spent about two weeks just tossing me around the room. <laughs> and he said, you know, I don't know what you're dressed up like a clown for. <laughs> but you can join me anytime. The invitation is here to come and join me. And he says, all you have to do is change your view. Stop, question, just question what you're currently seeing. And whatever comes up that reasserts the opinion of that old view, question it. Is this true? Is this true? And let yourself quiet with that question until you see irreversibly that it never was. And do that enough, your conditioning will no longer lock you into that perception. 25 years later, <laughs> that's how stubborn I am, it begins to work. <laughs> to live within ourselves, to live connected, where states of mind are harmless, they don't represent a tortured sense of my history. They don't accuse my mother. The reason I'm this way is because. They don't do that anymore. They don't have a 
a critic that sits there on the shoulder like a parrot claiming an idealized way of being counter to the, each action of speech and mind that is omitted. That doesn't happen. And to, for us to be able to now assume our proper seat in alignment with the view of truth, And we find much less of a need to defend. Defend against what? What's the intruder? Where's our guard up against? As we vacate, so do others. And when states of mind don't hold a combative quality to them, what are we protecting ourselves from? What accusation can't we hold? See, it's all mental. If you discern a physical difficulty, you'll get out of the way. Otherwise, it's just a mental challenge. And if you're not afraid of anything mentally, internally, then there's nothing, period. And then we start looking at our need to control, our need to assert our influence, which is the egoic statement of, often it's a compensation for feeling a lacking. And our need to control comes from the fear of our own lacking. And I've looked at the lacking, as I hope all of you have. You start looking at that lacking, it starts dissipating. It doesn't hold itself to be true. What's it true of? It's a state of mind. What's it pointing to? It's been there for a while. <laughs> That's all it can ever say to you. It's, I've been here for a while. Good. I'm glad you've been here for a while. Now you can fade out. And we learn that the way to engage in life is by receiving it. Now, the practices of changing this view, I just want to stress some of the practices. We've talked about them in the past, but I just want to encourage us in a wise direction. Because some of the ways in which our view is hardened stays in place are through our opinions and our control and our basic assumption, assumptions. So we need a practice. We need a practice in our daily life. We need an ongoing, forever practice where we base ourselves within, not the 45 minutes a day or however long you sit, in which listening is more important to you than being understood. So you're receiving. What does listening do? It opens us beyond our opinions. So it's opening us beyond the locked format of the old view. 
the state, the state of listening. You see what, I mean, when you're listening to someone, you can't listen to them and also think about what you believe they're saying. If you think about what you believe they're saying or the belief or the truth of what they're saying, then you won't listen to them. You'll listen to your own mind, your own opinions of what they're saying. But we're so afraid that they'll have some effect upon us, influence upon us, unless we guard what they're saying and screen everything through our opinions that we don't allow clear listening to occur. And we don't do that because we have no faith in discernment. Awareness. Awareness sees and knows. Long after we have left the scene, awareness is still here. And it sees the truth of what's being said, much clearer than my opinions ever could. And so when you begin to have faith that something else catches our fall, we start cleaning out the rubbish. And this is one of the pieces of that rubbish is our opinions. And receptivity. You see, feel these words within your practice. Your practice should be all about listening. Meditation. It's not, meditation isn't doing something different. It's changing the view. It's showing you how to change the view. So, okay, so meditation really can be defined as listening, receiving, being receptive. And receptivity breaks control. If you're receiving what's going on, you're not trying to influence what's going on. And so as we practice receptivity, you find less and less a need to live within the old view of control. But that's what meditation was meant to do. Meditation could be a servant to your old view. It can just follow what you've always believed right on through, if you'd like. But if you're interested in awakening, if you're interested in actually the shift here, then things have to change. You can't just keep asserting the way you've been and expect to change some drama, some moment, a flash, some startling nothing to appear that changes everything. It doesn't happen like that. And then questions, which we've talked about many times, that breaks assumptions. So because there's still a very loose net tying, a net a tie-in to all of our assumptions. And one assumption breeds another assumption, which is the offspring of another, and it just sets up the view all back in its full-out self and other point of reference. So we learn to question. When we find ourselves acting from a state of mind, what's going on here? What's happening? Is this true? Let me look at this. So curiosity, curiosity breaks reaction. 
when you're curious at something, understand, you want to understand what's going on, which is what the motivation for questioning is, you won't be reactive to what's going on. Reaction is a turning away, is not an understanding. It's the absence of understanding. So we practice understanding, we practice seeing and looking and exploring, you see? So all of this, all the things that we have been teaching in meditation actually has at its base the change of the view of life that we hold. And we find questions of the old view starting to just fall away, like when will this be over? Or this should not be happening to me. This should not be happening. Or, how do I rid myself of pain? How much longer do I have? How am I progressing? How am I doing? See, all those are referencing from the laws of separation. The laws of separation hold, the laws of thought hold separation. The laws of thought hold time and distance. We think those into being. And this new paradigm, which is immediate, which is everlasting, which is not separated the way that thought separates, and therefore there is no time or distance between things, doesn't take life in in that way. Doesn't see life, observe life, live life that way. It abides in life as a part of life, rather than an outside, outside person looking at life. That's done by thought. I have so much more that I have to do. What do you have to do? That, ever notice that? I don't, I don't have time to sit. You have, I have much to do. What do you have to do besides being present? What is there in life that could possibly weigh in equivalent to being present. Put anything up there. Now we begin to see that the view holds everything. And that we start actively working in body, speech, and mind, not just in theory. We reverse cues. When we feel something pulling us or taking us away from something, when we, feel, a, when we feel, feel inside of us some aversion, we use that as a cue to turn towards something rather than to follow the aversion away. We reverse the cue. You stand your ground instead of losing yourself in inadequacy or the mistake you feel yourself to be. And actions have to follow that. Because actions are actually the cell, cellular component of change. This is not just a mind change, it is a mind-body change. And the new view then starts manifesting. It feels more connected. Even through the eyes, even through the last organ on earth that would ever show that, even in the mind's eye. 
there is the experience, the growing experience of things not being separate. But beyond that, the heart and its assurance of that, and its absolute knowing of that, stands in that confidence. Okay. Can we sit for just a minute? <clears throat> So just sit there, you see. First decide whether you want to awaken to a new view. Maybe you don't. Maybe you just want to embellish the old view. Smooth out some rough edges. But if your heart is yearning for a new orientation, Then come, let's feast together on this. For this is assuredly a fundamental Dharma point. So, any questions or comments from anyone? I'd be happy to. Right, because you're. No, no. I. She, she's saying that uh, when you stop believing everything the mind is saying through its emotions or through its states of mind, it feels like that space or that distance. She doesn't understand how that could be more alive. It feels a little more dead, doesn't it? It feels like you're backing away, but you're not backing away, dear. Now, this is where I ask you to give me some credibility. As we become less reactive to what it is that's arising in us, as it diminishes in substance, so do we. It is, becomes air, space, be, there's not space between. There's nothing between. Because we are becoming as phantom-like as the object that we created. Because we were created and are creating ourselves through the investment we have in the object. And so we divest in one, so do we. And so that phantom quality of self and the phantom quality of what I created, the state of mind, begins to merge. Space begins. There's no distance because there are no object anymore and it becomes infused space, right? So it's not a distance. The distance is misunderstood 
when we think of ourselves as pulling back and having no feeling about what's going on, sort of an insulated and isolated position to what's going on. But that's not what happens. We become porous to the very thing that is going on. It comes through us like wind through Swiss cheese. <laughs> we can edit that out of the tape. <laughs> But the point, the point is, is that it's not how we see. We each, all of us have, we keep doing this, and this is the old view, how it works. The old view says, do I want to go that way? Because all I'll do is distance myself from life. I don't want to get further away from emotions. And like looking through the wrong end of binoculars, see something way out there that used to be called me. Hi, me! I don't want to do that. I don't want to be so far away from life. It's looked like I'm you know, on Mars looking at Earth through a telescope. Neither do I. Neither do I. And that detachment has nothing to do with this. Right? We're really talking about the essence of the new... The essence of the new view is interconnectedness. The only way that can happen is that you're less substantial than you think yourself to be. And then you can be more interconnected. Yes. So she sees this space that we were just talking about as the space where compassion can arise. Compassion will rise proportional to your non-substance substantiality. That you, to your air-like quality. And, and that's, well, that's where we make a choice. In that space. Right? Make a choice of? Do we choose to engage with our road rage on I-5? Right. That's true. Yes. Okay, so I, that's a very good point. So let me just, let me take you through 9-11. Okay, so because it's a dramatic, everybody's face is grims over. But just let me do it because it's a, it's a, it's a dramatic. Okay, so you're sitting there. This is a personal account. Sitting there watching live TV, the second tower being hit. Okay, so the first thing from me was there was no separate, I felt empathetic. I felt the immediate pain of what was just occurring. People dropping out of the wind, all of that. There is no distance between me and what just occurred. There was no counterposition to what just occurred. There was, it just blew me open. So there was, couldn't be a counterposition to what just occurred. There was just what was occurring, an awareness of it. Then, because that's a very uncomfortable position from, self from a self-perspective, it shakes itself out of that vulnerability that it just felt and says, who did this to us? It goes to anger, vengeance, which is a very firm sense of self and distance from 
the compassion I just felt. A lot of, I'm not feeling compassion at all right now. I'm feeling angry and vengeful. So I've forsaken the compassion to get myself back in position so that I can have a reaction and cover over the vulnerability so I never have to have it again. You see? Because the vulnerability is too insecure. It's too vulnerable. Things could happen in there. I'm not protected in there. That's the way the mind thinks it. And as soon as the mind gets on that track of thinking, then it sidetracks the whole compassion issue. But the compassion itself was the removal of any distance at all between what was happening and any reactivity at all to it. It was just compassion. Okay, okay, so I just want to show you, I, I, I deeply appreciate your sense of self-protection around opinions. For the tape's point of view, she says, I, don't, I, I can follow you all along here, but don't ask me not to have opinions. I, just, I feel like, you know, I would just be a blob. Uh, and so the mind is going to set up the worst case scenario for its fear. For you, opinions are very important, and I don't in any way... That's not a criticism. It's, we, for another person, something else is very important. There's need for the control is very important. Okay, so we each have where it is that we need to focus. But the mind is going to come at you with everything it has so that you won't touch that sacred altar of opinions. And so it's going to present case after case of why opinions are so important to you. It can never present the alternative because it doesn't know the alternative. It's never had the experience of the alternative. It only knows opinions. So it cannot possibly have a counter-argument for it. You have to find that counter-argument by having the courage to move through your opinions. Test it. You can always have them back. <laughs> Start here. Start here. Start by understanding the equivalence of all opinions, that no opinion is better than another. Five months before an election. Okay, I'll Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.